0: We're turning tonight to Isaiah chapter eight, sorry chapter one. Uh, my text in this chapter is verse eighteen, a very well known text and so we'll just read a few verses toward the end of the passage uh, here in Isaiah chapter one. I will be looking through at a lot of verses, so I will be reading them in the course of the message and so we'll just read a few verses here at uh, toward the text that I want to bring to your attention. So verse number 16 of Isaiah chapter 1, the prophet says, or the Lord says through Isaiah, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow." Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And it's that verse, verse 18, to which I want to bring your minds tonight by the Lord's help. Let us just bow in prayer and we'll commend our way into the Lord's hands. Father, we thank Thee for a sense of Thy presence in our midst already, Thank Thee for this Sabbath day that has almost come to a close, and we bless Thee for coming alongside of us, meeting with us around the Word, and we pray that Thou wilt come afresh now. Lord, give help to preach, give help to hear. May the Word come with freshness. Bless this verse, this tremendous verse of Scripture that comes from the lips of the Almighty to sinners, and how we pray that sinners will hear what the Lord has to say in this verse, that it will be riveted on the mind and sink down into the heart and lodge there and bring forth fruit. So, Lord, answer prayer, abide with us, bless us now. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake and for His eternal glory. Amen. So, verse 18, let me read it again with you. And Isaiah 1, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I would suggest to you that to be summoned to appear in the courtroom is not an experience that any of us would seek to have voluntarily. The natural inclination of the heart is not the desire to attend the court, not even as a witness or a member of the jury, never mind as a defendant. In this well-known verse, a certain word is used that sends forth the flavor of the courtroom scene. It is the word reason. The Lord says here, come now, let us reason together. That word belongs to the court system. When we understand the word and what takes place in the courtroom, if we are wise, if we care about our souls, well, in this case, we should plan and we should make every effort to attend the court that's in view in this statement. With all of our hearts, we would want to be there and want to participate in what we might well call the due process that unfolds. You see, this is God's court that is in view in this verse. It is a real court setting, with the words and the terms being of a legal and a forensic nature. The text opens with God, the the, the judge of all, issuing a summons to attend. And yet the terms that are employed are characterized with mercy and also with grace. In the language that's used here, there is nothing foreboding, there is nothing harsh, there is nothing designed to intimidate any individual or to create fear within the heart. Instead, the Lord's words actually contain a drawing and an alluring power. Immediately, they give the impression of the divine interest, of God's interest, in the deep needs and in the heartfelt needs of those individuals who are yet in their sins and have those needs because of sin, the troubles, the wretchedness, the guilt, the corruption that sin brings. The Lord knows all about that, and therefore He summons sinners to come to his court, and the terms signify at once that there is a divine provision made with regard to the effects of sin and the deliverance that we need from our sins. And so the operative word in this verse, in this opening appeal of verse 18, is this word reason. It's used quite a lot in the Scriptures of the Old Testament. It's a word that denotes the kind of argumentation that belongs in a court of justice. When the different parties uh, come together, they state the grounds of their case, they enter into discussion, into even argumentation, and move right on through to the verdict that must be given. In this uh, case, the word that the Lord uses in the Hebrew language is a word that often is used to address magistrates, commanding them to seek judgment, to relieve the oppressed, to do justice to orphans, and many, many other ways the word is used in the Old Testament. Those were all terms that are taken from the court of law. In other words, or in other references rather, with this uh, word being used, the Lord addresses men as accustomed to the proceedings of the court, as if they are there to present their case being on trial. And in this text, the Lord uses this word in a most striking way. He actually employs it to set forth the principles concerning which he is willing to bestow pardon on needy sinners. That's what the Lord is saying here. Come now, let us reason together. Let's get together in the courtroom. Let's look at the whole case. Let's examine it. Let's see what's wrong. Let's expose the needs. Let's find out what the remedy is. That's what the Lord is saying to sinners in this wonderful verse. This is actually amazing for this reason that the one who makes the appeal and the one who says to the sinner, Come now, let us reason together. Let's get into the courtroom. Let's talk about this matter is the one who is the offended party. He's not the offender, I mean the Lord. Man's the offender. And yet here is the offended party calling on the one who is the offender to come to the court and get the matter settled. So the Lord issues a call here to sinners to come together with Him in conference over the salvation of the soul. What condescension we see there that the Lord would actually be pleased to draw near to sinful men and direct them with such a call as this text contains. But this is, you see, a demonstration of His marvelous grace. When He could rightly pass by all men, and I mean all men, Because the Lord could have done that, remember? He could have passed by all men and leave them to the just punishment that's due to their sin. He intervenes and He comes on an errand of mercy in tones such as these that are found in this wonderful text. I want to come to it right away and look with you at what this verse actually brings before us. What I want to do, why I want to handle this verse tonight, is to bring before your minds certain truths that shine forth from God Himself by which sinners are encouraged to seek Him, encouraged to come to the court and hear what God has to say. There are truths here that I trust you will feel the impact of them and the appeal of them and recognize that God is calling you to come into conference with Him and listen to what he has to say about you, about your sin, about your need, about what he can do for your soul. First of all, I see here divine patience. It says, come now and let us reason together. And those words reverberate with infinite patience and infinite suffering when we consider those who are addressed with their identity being revealed Right down through the first part of this very chapter, study shows that this invitation given by the Lord is addressed to the most careless, the most unworthy, the most ungodly sinners imaginable. The proof is that the context contains very, very graphic language about sinners, about their state, about their condition, how God sees them, how He views them, And as I said, they are the most unworthy, the most guilty, the most ungodly you could actually imagine. And yet the Lord says to such people, now let's come together, come and hear what I have to say to you. And that does emanate with divine patience. Look with me at some of these sinners that are brought before us in this earlier passage. They are unfeeling sinners. If you go right right back to verse number 2 you will see what I mean. He says there, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. I have nourished and brought up children, and then he says they have rebelled against me. And there you have unfailing sinners. The Lord, he rightly calls upon heaven and earth to be His witnesses that He had spoken to men, He had dealt graciously with men in His common grace, He had meted out to men all that they need to sustain Him. And yet, the response is that they rebelled against Him. They were deliberately hard and deliberately unfailing, unfeeling sinners. No thought of God no desire to come to know Him, no desire to respond to Him, to see what He has done in their lives or the ways in which he's provided for them in the natural course of life, no response like that whatsoever, but rather the hardening of their hearts, hearts that are not uh, in any way sensitive toward the Lord, no love for Him, no desire for Him, no feeling for Him, unfeeling sinners hardening their hearts against them. My friend, how dangerous that is. How dangerous to be unresponsive to the appeals of God and the mercies of God and the common grace of God. How dangerous is the situation in which you place your soul when you respond in that manner and you're really telling the Lord, I want nothing to do with you. I want my own way. I want my sins. I want to go the way the flesh desires. I have no feelings for thee. Then there are also ungrateful sinners. Because if you look again at verse number two, those words toward the end of the verse once more, I have nourished and brought up children, And they've rebelled against me. And there God is saying, just taking it this way, He's speaking here of people who are completely, they are totally ungrateful. He says, I've nourished you. I have brought you up. But you've rebelled against me. You see, from the earliest days of their lives, many people, and there are some of you like that who sit here tonight, who are exposed to a variety of divine and spiritual privileges. I know it mentions here physical things, but there are also spiritual matters in view as well in this language. Divine spiritual blessings and privileges and opportunities. Is that not true? Has Has that not been your case, where you have been under many, many privileged situations, where you have been exposed to much of the Lord's long-suffering and His instruction, and yet you have not responded in any other way but by being fully ungrateful to the Lord. You see, my friend, you haven't been grateful to the Lord over the fact that a Sunday school teacher or teachers or children's workers or preachers or whoever you care to mention sat down with you and taught you the things of God and instructed you from the Scriptures, and you memorized the verses that they gave you, but you did it reluctantly. And you sat through their classes or through church services, and all you have shown in response is one not only of unfeelingness toward the Lord, but one of ingratitude. Now, it wouldn't be any surprise If the Lord cut you off for that, because He does cut sinners off for their unfeeling and their ungrateful responses, they're also unmoved sinners. Look at verse 3 The ox knows his owner, the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. You take those terms in that uh, third verse. And what is the Lord saying? He's saying that there are sinners who are less moved than the dumb beast. If you feed your cows well or whatever animals you possess, they will respond to it. All you have to is rattle the bucket and they come galloping because they know that you're going to feed them. And those of us brought up in that agricultural scene, we we can actually see what the Lord is saying here. Instinctively, the ox, the ass, or any other kind of animal that is cared for and looked after. And of course, that's what the farmer wants to do. Treat them well. Because he knows if he treats them well, they'll respond. They'll put on the meat and they'll be ready for the slaughterhouse. But the point is, here are mere animals... And the Lord says concerning them that they know their owner and their master's crib, but my people, those who are human beings, those whom I've nurtured and and fed and so on, they have absolutely no motion toward me at all. They are unmoved. Unmoved. What man would keep an animal that never obeyed him? Just take the animals here, the ox, the beast of burden, The ass, another beast of burden, if they turned out to be useless or whatever and wouldn't work, well, he's not going to keep them too long. And yet there are sinners here tonight and for years. God has put breath in your body. He has put food in your stomach. He has put clothes on your back. And all you have done is reject His ways and trample His Son beneath your feet and insult the Holy Spirit. Unmoved, as well as ungrateful and unfeeling. But then move on. Look at verse 4. Here we now see that they are ungodly sinners. Verse 4 says, A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children, children, that are corrupters. And in those terms, you have got a very vivid presentation and, and, and revelation of the ungodliness of the nation to which the Lord spoke here, the nation of Judah in the days of Isaiah. But it is very, very much a revelation of people still, isn't it? Here's the ungodliness of society. It tells us here that they are a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Oh, what words those are, laden with iniquity. The thought is of being so ungodly and so uh, determined in their practice of sin that sin has ingrained their character, their being. It weighs them down. They carry it with them wherever they go. They're shackled by it, and they're shackled to it. That's the sense of that language. I notice the build-up of terms there. Sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. And the sense of the language is that here are people who actively are spreading their wickedness as much as they can among other people. They are totally ungodly given over to sin, given over to the ways of the flesh, living only to please their own, their own lusts, and gratify those lusts. how men and women, this is ungodliness. But then look at verse 5. They are unrepentant sinners. It says, why should ye be stricken any more? Well, ye will revolt more and more, the whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. The sense of this verse is that the Lord had actually chastised them. That's what the first words mean. Why would ye be stricken anymore? The Lord does strike sinners or smite them or rebuke them or chastise them somehow or other. He brings over them uh, in, in various ways, this sense of their wrongdoing. And, and he, he, he confronts them. He, he, he comes and he meets them. He lays the rod on them. But these people just would not be corrected. He says, why should ye be stricken anymore? Then he says, ye will revolt more and more. The Lord had dealt with them, but they just kept on going. There is no repentance. Ah, oh, my friend, repentance. It is essential. Without repentance, there is no mercy with God. Repentance and and faith go together. And it's very easy to say, I believe, or I am trusting in the Lord, or whatever term people use, and many do, but watch their lives, look at their behavior, and there's no turning away from sin. They still love their sin. They still run after their sin. There is no penitence in their souls at all. They ignore that matter, that issue of the requirement, the divine requirement of repentance from from sin. Are you still harboring sin Behind the scenes maybe, or whatever way you do it and you're pursuing it and you love it and you set your heart on it and maybe your conscience bothers you at times and therefore you try to cover it up and cloak it from other people, but you're still an unrepentant sinner. they are also unclean sinners. Verse number six, that well-known verse from the sole of the foot even onto the head, there's no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. That verse is a portrayal of man's awful depravity, the uncleanness of his very being, the whole course of nature polluted and corrupted. And my friend, that's why I say when you come to verse number 18 and you read those words, And he says, come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. He's addressing these people in this context. He's speaking to these sinners whom I have sought to set before you under these terms. What a description we have in those terms of fallen humanity and yet to them. In divine patience, this appeal is addressed. Why is the Lord patient with sinners? But simply because of His great love that He has for men. He came to save sinners. He came to save, and this is the wonderful thing, He came to save the very worst of sinners. He says that, doesn't He? I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And various characters throughout Scripture demonstrate that statement, that other statement even, that this man receiveth sinners. Oh, how wonderful that is. There's a wide open door, my friend. You may have lived in at least some of these ways. I don't know. I can't can't see your life or the emotions of your soul or the hidden recesses of your heart, but I know I'm speaking to sinners in this gathering tonight. And yet God says to you, Come now and let us reason together. Because Jesus Christ was sent to save sinners. And you go through the Word of God and think of those sinful ones in His own, even in the Lord's own genealogy. We read of Tamar, who's found a way back there in Genesis. We read of Rahab, read of Bathsheba. There are just three women whom you will find in the Lord's genealogy." Now, that is amazing when you start to think about it. It's not that the Lord merely became a man, but to become a man, to take our humanity, to be born of the woman, namely Mary, to be born in that particular line, He identified himself in his genealogy with individuals who are among the worst of the sinners you'll ever meet in the Bible. Do you realize that wherever you meet Rahab in the Bible, she's always called Rahab the harlot? Because she was one. She's in Christ's genealogy. Bathsheba. Who was just as guilty as David in that act of, of adultery? But she's in the Lord's genealogy. Why did the Lord, as it were, well, allow Himself to come from such a line? Because He wanted people, whether among the Jews or beyond their pale, throughout the nations, to understand that He came to save sinners. What about the woman who washed his feet when the Lord saved her, of course? She washed his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair. But who was she? She was a fallen woman. But God, in Jesus Christ, saved that woman, drew her to Himself, and her heart bounded with joy because the Lord had set her free. He had patiently dealt with her or the woman at the well there in Samaria. You see, there are all these people who stand out in Scripture. I could mention many, many more of them, and they demonstrate this matter of the Lord's patience, divine patience, because every one of them had to come to God's courtroom. Every one of them had to be brought to the great assize where their sin was exposed and their guilt was made known and they had to see it and confront it and deal with it and yet find in doing so that there was mercy with the Lord. Ah, my dear friend, is there no movement on your part? The Lord has been infinitely patient with you. Beware, beware lest His patience run out. And you find your soul at the last cast away and lost forever. Divine patience. But there also here divine provision. Look at those words in our text Though that your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. There is divine provision. Those terms in that part of the verse are descriptive of the gracious provision of God to deal with the sins of those who come to His courtroom and they listen to what He has to say and they feel the tones of love and mercy and patience and grace. And and the Lord says this to them, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now there is, indicated there, the source of this divine provision. Take the, the words, as white as snow. And then, the next little phrase, as wool. There you have a pointer to the source of the, of the divine provision of God for the saving of sinners. Because if you take the first words there, as white as snow... Snow comes down from heaven. And it's indicating in that very simple way, this statement, that the provision that God makes for the saving of sinners, for their cleansing, for their pardon, is heavenly in source. It originates from above, it doesn't come from beneath. That's one sure thing. It comes down. You see, my friend, there is no prevailing provision for sinners that is earthly or that is merely human. If it's not heavenly in origin, then there is no hope for sinners at all. But take the next phrase, your sins becoming as wool. What does that mean? What's so important about that little expression, that little phrase, as wool? Well, you see, wool reminds us of the lamb. Wool reminds us of the sheep. Animals as sacrifice. And so we are pointed here in this language. This is the whole thing about this source of this provision. It only comes down from above, but it is provided through the one who is God's Lamb. The one who was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears was dumb. And he's referred to as the Lamb of God. And furthermore, as the Lamb of God, he makes sinners as white as snow. He purges them, he cleanses them by virtue of what he did for them. Think of what David prayed in that great psalm, Psalm number 51, where he prayed this, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Every little word here is so important in this verse. Your sins can be as scarlet and as crimson as often is the case. But the Lord has a provision whereby you can become as white as snow, clean and purified and washed. That's God's provision. So, there's the source of it. It's from heaven, it's through Christ. But then there's the strength of it. Sins are described here as being both scarlet and crimson. And when you start to examine those two words, they're very much the same in a sense, but at the same time, uh, there's a difference between them. But the, 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 the common thing that they signify is this, they signify a fixed color. The actual Hebrew words for scarlet and crimson are words that signify a color that is so fixed, so ingrained, whatever it touches, whatever it is poured on or whatever, or applied to, that neither dew or rain or washing or long usage will ever remove it. My friend, that is a very stark reminder of the fixedness and the permanency of our sins. I tell you tonight, when sin gets a hold, and of course, even sin among our little ones, never mind the man, the woman who has lived in the ways of the world and in sinful pursuits for years, take any age group and you will find that sin is ingrained. The state of our souls is like a deeply dyed garment. The crimson and the scarlet colors bringing that out. And so, the language does indicate the permanency of sins in the heart. I mean, apart from the grace of God, apart from what Christ is able to do. You see, no human means will ever wash This This is literally so. You take what the Lord is saying here. He doesn't say this merely out of some poetical kind of an approach. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, and so on. No, what he's showing here is sin is ingrained. Sin is deep dyed. Sin marks the life, the heart, the conscience, the whole being, so much so that no human means will remove the stains and the pollution and the guilt and the corruption of sin. No effort of man. No external rights. Oh, no, no, no. No tears. No prayers. Are all themselves sufficient to take away those sins. They are deeply fixed in the heart, just as the scarlet and the crimson colors that are in view here were in the web of cloth that that um, that they're put on. And I'm sure the ladies here tonight know something what I'm talking about. Your child has come to you, or whoever it might be, maybe, yourself at times and you've got paint on your clothes and nothing will take it out. So you know what I'm talking about. You know what God's talking about here. He takes that physical, literal dimension about these colors and how deeply they ingrained themselves into a garment or whatever and nothing of a human kind would ever remove it. But my friend, what the Lord is showing you is that what human power, what human effort can't remove, His provision through Jesus Christ does remove. Though your sins are as deep stained and permanent as the colors that are mentioned here, yet they can be removed So much so is that stain, taking away that stain of sin, that it says it here Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And what he's saying is that that wool by which, or which has been stained with the crimson and the scarlet, it can be brought back to its original purity, its original form. And, my friend, that's the gospel. God's in the work of reversing what sin has done. He can remove the stains, He can take them away. You take those people who are in heaven tonight, they've reached home. They were justified on earth, and then they were sanctified afterwards, and the cleansing kept on working, and the purging. The application of the blood of the Lamb to their souls, to their lives until when they reached heaven they were made perfect in holiness. And in Revelation 7 that tremendous statement where the question is asked about those who are arrayed in white garments. Who are these? And whence came they? And the answer is These are they that have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He said, my friend, where every human effort fails, there is a power that goes deep down and removes the stain and the corruption and the pollution of sin. And that power is the power of Jesus' blood. If there is one thing the devil doesn't like, it's singing about the blood and preaching about the blood because the Bible says it is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses from all sin. And that's this provision that we're looking at here. That's the strength of it. It's so powerful, so, so potent. The Savior's work, the Savior's merit, the value of the atonement that even the worst, deeply ingrained sin is removed. God no longer sees it. He will never bring it up again. It is gone, he says, as far as the east is from the west. So far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Would you not like that to be your case? That those sins that stay in your name, your character, your life, can be removed by the blood of the Lamb. And you know, let me tell you something. There's also here the significance of this divine provision, and it's this. God never pardons sin, removes sin, I want to get this home to you tonight. Except on the basis of the atonement by which his righteous demands are met and his wrath is satisfied and his justice in all its demands is fully met. He will never save anybody on that, except on that basis. Oh, my friend, you're shut into Christ. You're shut into the gospel. If you're ever going to be in heaven, you will never be there apart from the gospel. You'll never be there by your works. You'll never be there by any religious activity. You'll never be there through your church. I don't care what it is, this one or any other church, any other religion, you will never enter heaven except through what God is showing you here. This provision, this divine provision that brings this wonderful cleansing and purging and justification to the sinner. And I draw your attention as I close tonight to those opening words again, where we have the third quality that arises out of this verse. Yes, there's the Lord's divine patience and divine provision, but look at His divine persistence, He says, come now, come now. You see, God's way of salvation is one in which He persists with sinners. Persisting in the sense of urging them to come. He says, come, but not only that, He says, come now. You know what He's saying there? I can only mention a few things that the Lord's saying about this divine persistence. He's saying, friend, you have sinned far too long already. Come now. Don't wait anymore. He's also telling you that delay will never leave you any better. You delay and you get worse. You wait and your sin multiplies. The sin is against you. You linger, and your guilt mounts up like a huge mountain over your soul. Waiting and delaying and so on will never make you any better. But not only that, come now, the Lord says, because you have no guarantee of any further time. None. Now, my friend, I hope you're healthy and well and you live whatever it may be in terms of years. But I cannot stand in this pulpit and say to you, don't worry about it tonight. I'll see you next week. Something like that. I cannot do that. Because I don't know whether I'll be here tomorrow or next week And I certainly don't know whether you will. And so the Lord says to you tonight, come now, He's persisting in His appeal to your soul to take action and get to Him and get to the fountain opened up for sin and uncleanness and there find the remedy that you desperately need divine patience. He has waited. He has called. He has implored you. Divine provision. All is ready. What you need to be saved is all ready. And this divine persistence, He's still speaking. In mercy, He's speaking to your heart. Obey that tonight. Even now, in the closing moments here, bow your soul before the Lord and cry to Him to have mercy on you, to save you. Let us bow in prayer as we come to the close of this part of our time here tonight. And again, I just say to any here who are troubled and concerned, about sin, about your soul, about your salvation, that now is the time to seek the Lord. Mr. Shirt and I are both here, as you're aware. I'll be conducting the Lord's table. He is free to speak to anyone who would like to receive counsel and, and further direction. And so you make that known. We'll go down to the door now, and you just come out there and tell us I, we, we need I need to, to to talk to you, I need help. It'll be our joy and our privilege to to do that with you. My friend, take the step tonight. Come to Christ. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit will draw sinners, that he will move them by his mighty power, that irresistible power that he exercises. And that there will be souls who will pass from death unto life, be born of God, and be brought to the blessed Redeemer. Be with us as we gather for the table, those who do so meet with us, Lord, touch our hearts. Help many of your people to take this blessed opportunity to remember the Lord and come down among us, we pray. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for His sake and for His eternal glory. Amen.